and welcome to the Epsilon Theory Podcast. We're so glad you joined us today, uh, but as always, uh, we'd like to ask you if you liked what you heard today or you learned anything uh, to go to the service that you downloaded or are listening to this podcast on and like, share, and subscribe. Today's episode is going to be all about leverage. I'm your host today, Rusty Gwynn, and I'm joined as always by my partner, Dr. Ben Hunt. Good hey, Rusty. <laughs> Hi, Ben. Uh, and today will be all about leverage. And uh, I, will, I will say, <laughs> unintentionally or intentionally, you, Dr. Hunt, have been all about leverage and what you've been writing on the on the website lately. Well, you know, I I, I have been. <laughs> so I've written three notes over the last three months that um, and I really felt from the heart and have had a good response. The first was on, uh, I'll call it, you know, GameStop, right? And 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 part of that was around the the the, the blow up of Melvin Capital, right? What a what a ridiculously named hedge fund, right? If it's going to be a recurring was. theme is ter- yeah. the terribly named Yeah, the uh, terribly named, right, right, right. And th- this will be an aside, right? I shouldn't say it now, but it'll be an aside, which is that I really think you should kind of judge the hubris quotient of any kind of private fund you're investing in, right? I, I mean, if you've used up the, the you know, minerals plus color and you've, you know, and you get into, you used up the, 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 the Greco-Roman gods, right? You, you end up things with like like Melvin Capital. Now, see the, the risk of of doing this without having researched it is we're going to discover this was his great grandfather that was a war hero or something was named Melvin, and we're just going to feel really still, bad. still. I don't feel bad. <laughs> I don't feel bad. But Melvin was the first. That you Melvin was about. the first one around around GameStop. So that was the the first blow up, and we talked about leverage and that note and and how that contributed to, you know, this ridiculous trade that that Gabe Plotkin had put on around GameStop. Well, then a month after that, I wrote a note about Lex Greensill and his eponymously named fund, right, or, or banking, whatever you want to call it, uh, Greensill Capital, and, and its blow up, which, you know, also has at its core the use of leverage to try to juice an idea that just wasn't working very well and ended up being, I'd say, just an outright fraud, right, with, with what Greensill Capital was doing. And then this week, wrote a note about Archegos Capital, or again, what a name, right? Arch Egos. I, I, I mean, this is this is crazy, right? But, 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 but Archegos Capital, the so-called family office, and I am using air quotes here, uh, for, for, for Bill Huang. So, I, I We've got three blow-ups in three months. As yet, you know, not not really any sort of systemic ramifications unless you are an investor in or work for Credit Suisse, right? <laughs> Which was kind of like, you know, it's a trifecta for, right. for, 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 for Credit Suisse. Um, but I, I, I don't think, A, it's a coincidence that we've had three blow-ups in three months. Uh, and we want to talk about that. I don't think this is the end of blowups. We want to talk about that. But most of all, what I think we want to talk about today is this common denominator of leverage that I think we both believe was the real driver of the, the failure of all three of these these funds. I, I mean, I know Melvin Capital's still around and you got, got new capital and the like, but Still, the failure of these three funds and these three separate incidents. 
Well, and and we've written about a lot of these things before, and fr- and frankly, even before um, everything had come to light on Greensill, and before Archegos was was in the news, it was two podcasts ago that we were talking about this very topic. I and know, the, right? And the conclusion we came to was deep concern about the extent to which there was, you know, perhaps too much leverage in the system more broadly. And of course, our our contributor and friend Brent Donnelly has has consistently. You know, anytime we write about this, this topic brings up the, the, the observation that anytime something really, really bad happens, it seems to be driven by the existence of leverage, which is, I think, <laughs> a, a pretty you know, sensible and um, probably yeah. not surprising observation. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I still got this great quote from Warren Buffett, right, that I just remember from years ago. Man, this, this was back like in grad school when I first read this, and, and I didn't really get it then. But I, I get it now, and he, he's saying, you know, leverage is like driving with a, a spear sticking out of the spirit, the steering wheel of your car. And yeah, you drive more carefully, right? But if 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 you hit a pothole, you're you're toast, you're done. And 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 that's what happened with Melvin Capital. That's what happened with Greensill. I, I say that's what happened with Greensill. There was you know just outright fraud there as well. And certainly that's what happened with Arcos. Right, you they they put all these big long spears on their steering wheels, and um, you know they got they got it in the chest, all three of them. <laughs> I, I think the only thing in your analogy that I would dispute is that it made any of them drive any careful, yeah, more carefully. Yeah, they would yeah, 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 yeah. That you're you're absolutely right about that. But it isn't just these three, and I I don't mean that as sort of a predictive statement about you know what we right. necessarily see going forward, but certainly as a, an empirical statement of of any sorts of blowups or, or, or major systemic events that we'd seen in the past, to the extent that, you know, we, we have written about this conceptually, right? And, and one of the Well, by we, it's you, Rusty, right? You've written a couple of good pieces on this. I've, I've written about it a couple of times, and I think specifically about the, the practice of risk management. And, yep. and specifically, we had, a, we had a note uh, from, it may have been as, as long as two years ago, um, called The Grammar of Risk. And, and it was a um, a restatement of something that I'd learned in in my days at a, a you know at a, a big pension fund and mm-hmm. and how we thought about the exposures that we were taking in our hedge fund and credit portfolios that we we had with external managers and so you know at at, at Texas Teachers at various times the the hedge fund portfolio was anywhere between three and fifteen billion dollars and yep. it was you know sometimes north of thirty different managers and so we obviously had to have a lot of of ways of thinking about risk. And so we, we we did a lot of research into what it was that you could have been like one of seven you know you know funders for uh, Bill Wong. It, it, it was it was a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, you know when we when we researched what yep. was it that caused blowups in the funds in which we could have invested, we had a huge database of these funds. What we continued to find was the presence of one of three different characteristics and mm-hmm. it was usually more than one and so the and, and they're easy to remember as LLC the LLC risks right number one is the one that we've been talking about which is leverage number two is liquidity or specifically the the absence the of absolute, by which yeah, we mean right. illiquidity right and the third is concentration and functionally what we found is that you can almost always get away with one mm-hmm you can almost never get away with, with three. Two. Oh, with, with three. three. With three, yeah. And when things are 
going well, you can probably squeak by with two. And when things are going poorly, you're going to get, you know, the spear to the, to the, the chest spear to from the, chest. the two. And it's amazing how frequently that, that little rule of thumb, that heuristic ends up being the case. And, and you know, I think that it, I'm not going too far in saying leverage is almost always the one of the ones that's present, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. concentration and illiquidity can create annoyances. Um, and if you're running a business, I think they can blow up an asset management business. But from an asset owner's perspective, concentration and, and illiquidity alone are, are unlikely to actually create a true blow up in the equity value of something that you've invested. Right, right. Leverage, on the other hand, uh, is that component. Yeah. That, and, and, and I think in each of these cases, cases right, when we talk about Archegos, Melvin, and Greensill, you're talking about but at least leverage and concentration, right? When we look at the, yep. the positions within Melvin's portfolio, you know, it was already concentrated before the shorts started to work against them. And, you know, as, as you know, the, the, the whole downside of shorts is that they're they're terrible yeah, for risk management yeah, and that yeah, they get yeah. bigger as no, the no, no. gets we, we talked about this, you know, in the note I wrote and as well as on the podcast. I mean, it was, it's an unconscionable short position to have on, right? To, to you know, to have whatever it was, like, you know, some single digit percent of the portfolio short a single company. Mm. That's insane. That's Absolutely. insane. I, I mean, my rule of thumb was, you know, a short position should never be more than 50 basis points of, of, of my portfolio. That was a big short for us. For, for a single name. Yeah. For a single name. Yeah. For, for a single name. And and even there, you know, sometimes I get above 50 basis points. But even there, I would never short something with with anything that had, you know, either a short interest or a percentage of the 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 float being short. You know, if you, if if it's more than ten days of of, of short interest or ten percent of the float that's out there, period. I'm not talking about what I own. I've, I've, I want to have just a minuscule portion of that. But that was kind of my rule of thumb. It's just you 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 can't risk a lot on that because as you say, short squeezes not only can happen, they will happen. They're going to happen to everybody who does this for a living or professionally. They're just going to happen. It's, it's, a, it's a price of doing business. And you know, as you say, I, I, I kind of wave my hand sometimes at, at you know this notion of risk management. It's, it, it's a real thing. And this is what we're talking about. It's really common sense rules about supposedly rare events that ain't as rare as you think they are. Yeah. Right? that you cannot allow to exist in your portfolio unless you've got a business model or someone to bail you out or something to, you know, to, uh, I'll say, is the phrase I think we're going to use later in the podcast, you know, we want to, to leverage the skewness that, 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 that exists by taking these unconscionable risks. Yeah, we, we will get to that. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I think that the additional um, problem for, for, and this is more Melvin than it is Archegos because they're different situations, you know, the additional problem that you have in concentrating a short position is that, as, as we just alluded to, number one, that your concentrated position becomes more concentrated when it, when yes. it doesn't work, number one. And number two, as a matter of practice, if you are taking alpha positions in shorts, Almost by definition, you are going to be taking on leverage because yep. you're not going to be sitting there with a net short position. And so in almost every case, 
you know, a, a long short manager, whether it's in equities or credits, is going to have a long position on the other side with the expectation that they're going to be, quote, offsetting and moving in, right. in, in different directions. Rusty, I want to interrupt a second because I want to make sure everyone understands what you just said about how, because <laughs> it's so important to, to, to get this, but when a short when you're short something and it goes against you, your position gets bigger. The risk you're taking on gets bigger. It's the opposite of, of a long position, right? So, so let's say I own something, company XYZ, and it goes down 10%. I'm sad, I lost money, but at least, at least, it's a smaller position in my portfolio now. So any subsequent losses are going to hurt me less. It is, a, it is the opposite with short positions, and it, and it's something that is obvious, it's mathematical, and yet it's something that you don't think about much. But it's so important that long positions have this, this kind of martingale effect, right? If, if it goes against you, the position gets shorter. It's not going to hurt you as badly in the future. Short positions, the, the worse it gets for you, the worse it gets for you. Yeah. And, and, and man, that's such an important lesson to learn. Yeah. And, and, and to, for that reason, I think I would describe of those LLC risks, right? What, right. what was Melvin's biggest mistake and what was Archegos' biggest mistake? I, I think they were different. I, I think when you look at what, what Melvin did, it, it was concentration mm -hmm. um, and specifically the, that interaction effect between concentration and short positions. Whereas in the case of Archegos, of course, we don't know all the details uh, of that one in, in the same way that we do else, you know, elsewise in terms of the, the portfolio. But when you look at the results, it seems pretty clear the issue was was, was leverage. leverage. It was leverage. <laughs> Actually, I want to. I, I do believe that the the issue was was ultimately leverage with Melvin as well. The reason being that I, I think I don't know his strategy, but but it's the, it's the only rationale that makes sense to me. Yeah, is that it is possible. This is true long or short, but it's particularly possible with shorts to essentially bully the stock. Right. That if you have, it's like in poker. Right. If you've got the big stack. If you know, if your stack dominates all the other players at the table, you can bully the table, right? With your cards may be so-so, but the size of your stack, your ability to push more money and to keep raising the bet past the capability of other players who want to call you or, or want to stay in the game with you, I think that's a lot of what was going on with the short positions uh, that it worked that if you can get enough capital through leverage, then you can bully these stocks. And I, I think so. I, I do think that leverage was a, a key component in Melvin as well. But you're right. Obviously, that is what blew up. Archegos. Yeah, I actually think maybe we need to go back to something a little bit more fundamental, because this this again, this podcast is about leverage. But Maybe we should talk about what we mean when we say leverage. Oh, that's, because that's, that's a good idea, Rusty. Because I, yeah. I can I can yeah. tell you. I mean, when when I've I've had a little bit of the Gelman amnesia effect uh -huh. Um, uh -huh. in reading uh, some of the coverage of Archegos and, and talking about explicit borrowing and how much you know money that they were 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 borrowing um, to you know put on some of these positions. And there are ways to think about that 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 may be the right framing for it. Um, but I, I think that there is a maybe not perfect understanding of the different ways in which leverage can enter into a portfolio, but not even just a portfolio, because I think we want to talk about 
leverage in the system in, yeah, more broadly, yeah, not yeah. just in hedge fund portfolios. But and we're lever- critical, and we're critical about that leverage in the system. Yeah, but we need to be. I, I, this is a good idea, Russ, because we we need to be clear about what we mean when we talk about I'll call it bad or overdone leverage, and kind of what we're not talking about too. Yeah, we. This this is a good point. Is it worth talking more definitionally, definitionally yes. at first about? Yep. This idea of financial and explicit leverage and implicit yep. or the leverage that come through, comes through derivatives, because you know obviously in each of these cases there were different kinds of leverage at play. Right. Right. So I mean, in in the case of 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 Melvin, of course, you know most of the leverage there presumably is leverage that came through their relationship with their prime broker and through the shorting of securities. And to be clear, yeah, you know, prime broker is basically is your banker, right? So so and and. and a big fund like Melvin would have two, maybe even three, primes. I'm not sure how right? many primes they had yet. Right, but 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 that's kind of typical for a for for a bank that's for a for a fund that size because you don't want to have all of your counterparty risk, right, with one big Wall Street bank, and the prime that prime brokering business is a very lucrative business, or traditionally it's been a lucrative business for for for, for Wall Street because you're that's. You're basically, you know, you're lending them money. You're 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 helping them do their business. It's a, it, it it's like a broker for for a you know for an individual, right? Except at a much larger scale, and and the fees and the I call it the net interest margin and 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 the like that you can get from those prime broker relationships, it makes it a very coveted business for 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 a Wall Street firm. Yeah, and 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 I think that. In all of these cases, less less so in Green Green Cell, but certainly both the case of Archegos and Melvin, there were there were prime brokers at play, and some of the the borrowing that occurs with a prime broker can be explicit in the way you think of yep. of borrowing, as in literally you know money being 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 lent. Right. More often than not, the the borrowing is is more implicit. Implicit, correct. In which. You are as as the investor in one of these funds through the prime broker. You are required to post margin, and are able to acquire securities in excess of the equity or the the, the margin that you've that you've posted. And so, there are a number of different ways in which that can take place. And the the one in, in Archegos is one of the cases that that came up a lot, which is the use of total return swaps. And this is, I think, more broadly true for a lot of different kinds mm-hmm. of derivatives, because the derivatives themselves don't have some you know, evil characteristic, right? The idea that uh, I think a lot of people read about total return swaps that match the return profile or the total return profile of some underlying security is not in itself some evil or terrible thing, right? The the feature of the total return swap that came up in, in, in the Archegos situation is the extent to which the 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 fund or the the family office, depending on how you want to want to frame it, was able to use its its equity to acquire exposure through those total return swaps. That was a multiple of the cash right. or securities that were used right. as collateral that were held. And, and it it took me frankly, and I, I you know doing this, but it took me a long time to really get my head around the the variations and permutations of what you're describing, Rusty. So I, I want to spend a little bit of time on this because yeah. it's you'll, you'll you'll hear people talk about oh it's a fully funded swap or something you know what what the hell does that mean right and and what it means is that a swap is simply an agreement 
right? It's it's between two big boy institutions with you know plenty of lawyers to go over the the, the, the fine print here. This is this is not something that you know is 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 available except with people doing this with their 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 eyes wide open. But it and it is like most of these agreements are a derivative, which simply means that it's a contract that references something else. And in this case, the the most basic reference is, all right, let's reference the, the stock price of company XYZ. And so I've got a contract with you, you know, Mr. Goldman Sachs or Mr. Morgan Stanley, that if that reference, if the stock price of company XYZ goes up by a dollar, uh, I, I want you to pay me that dollar. And vice versa, if it goes down by a dollar, I'm going to owe you a dollar. How much are you going to charge me for that contract? Right? So that, 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 that's what's going on here. Yeah. And, and when we talk about, I'll say, a fully funded contract, which frankly, a lot of investment funds want. Because you've got to remember, when you enter into these contracts, it's not just the prime broker or the bank taking the risk of dealing with you but you're also taking on the risk of dealing with the bank. And, you know, this, 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 was, a, this was a big issue for, for a, a lot of the people who set up these, these contracts like this. Uh, a credit default swap is a contract like this with big banks before the great financial crisis. The question was, man, am I, am I going to get paid by the bank on the swap that I set up with them? So a lot of times... What, what you'll do is you'll either what's called fully fund the swap, meaning that, yeah, I, I mean, we're betting on this, 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 you know, company XYZ. Let's, let's kind of put our money where our mouth is, right? And so it's, it's going to be fully funded, meaning, okay, here's the money that would cost to buy that contract, that, that, that share of, of, of company XYZ. And yeah, if, if you bank, you, you owe me money. No, we're not going to make this a little ledger, you know, a little ledger issue. No, pay me my money. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want it in my bank account the well, next day. And, and there are a lot of reasons, very, really good reasons, why you would want to put on this kind of swap exposure. Yes. I mean, and, and, you know, I think back to, to my days in, in the pension world, there were opportunities because of supply and demand imbalances on with with what what a lot of the banks were doing in which we could earn a return by taking on our exposure to certain asset classes in swap so yep. for example um for there was a period i mean longer than a year these are not just sort of like ephemeral opportunities there was a period longer than a year in which we were getting russell 2000 exposure so the russell 2000 is small u.s small, small cap equity yep. exposure we were getting russell 2000 exposure not by buying you know, futures, not by buying the underlying stocks in the Russell 2000, not by buying an ETF. We were doing it by swapping into the exposure with with a bank. Mm -hmm. And we were getting paid more than 100 basis points. We were getting paid more than 1% per annum to take that exposure via swap. And, and, and of Which course- Which is real money. It's real money. When, when you're talking about these sort of sums. And, we, and, and of course, we weren't, we weren't doing it in a levered fashion, meaning right. we held- the, the notional value of the contract, 100% of it, we held in, in T-bills, in, in, in cash, you yep. know, except for, you know, wh whatever margin was, was, was being, you know, held to the side. I mean, it's, it's cash. 
And so the the intent there was not to access leverage. There was another objective. You know, there are other other ways that you know you could characterize these as being slightly nefarious or from a legal perspective. But there are countries like the UK where you've always had this classic stamp tax issue. Mm-hmm. And so when you're a foreign investor buying UK stocks, a lot of cases you're you you're, don't you don't want to buy the underlying equity. So you're either doing a, a swap or more common is CFD, which you know contract contract for difference. For difference. And yeah, and same so same thing, same thing. Yeah, and so it's it's a way to, as you're saying, you know, get the return without holding the underlying asset. And so there are really good reasons why swaps do not necessarily imply true leverage. That simply is one of the features that can be employed if someone wants to use it that and way. And was employed in the case of Archegos. Yeah. Right? So so it's, he was, you know, my sense again, doing this in two, for two reasons. One is, oh, I'm, I'm going to have the embedded leverage, the implicit leverage by entering into these contracts where my bank counterparties, they're not asking me to fund it fully. They're not asking me to hold all these T-bills over here, uh, and I don't want to, so I ain't going to do it. Instead, I'm going to have a contract where, where, where ultimately I've got to put a very little amount of money on the side to get the full economic benefit of owning or shorting that share of stock. Yeah. So that that is a feature... <laughs> Right, uh, it, as opposed to a bug of of the, the 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 swaps in general, it was it was a it was a it was a negative feature of the way it was done here, and I would say the biggest negative feature was that they did business with a convicted criminal. Right, so, I, I mean it, these, that's the way it is with all these instruments. Right, I, I I mean they're they're like they're like chef's knives. They're really freaking sharp. And they will absolutely cut you and cut your finger off, if not your whole arm off, if you're Credit Suisse. But you 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 must be careful with what you're doing. And my rule number one is you don't do business with raccoons when you're doing this, this kind of business. My shorthand for you know fraudsters and scamsters. So which is 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 a good rule, but it isn't the only way that you can cut yourself, especially yes. when you're when you're dealing with leverage, and the amount of leverage. Right? And, and you, you know you hear a lot of numbers that get thrown around. The amount of leverage that's used by different strategies can can vary pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. And, and you know your your average fund that you hear about, right? If if a, if a hedge fund is being covered in, you know what I would describe as you know the the standard financial press, nine times out of ten that coverage is going to be of a of a long short hedge equity right. hedge fund. Right, and one times out of ten, it's going to be a, a global macro or credit fund, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 the the whole range of other strategies tend to fall outside the scope of things that um, that get written about. They get written about, and your 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 typical long short equity hedge fund, it's, it will vary in terms of its overall exposure, but call it two hundred percent gross as sort of the the run of the mill long short absolutely. Fund. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and generally what, what we mean by that is if if you invest $100 with a long-short hedge fund, they are taking of that $100, $120 and buying stocks and $80 that they are short. And your your gross exposures can certainly be somewhat larger than that, especially in, in kind of what we call the, the equity market neutral space where 
because a lot you're, of these are quantitative. Right, you're, you're telling your investors that you're going to be balanced on the long side and the short side. And so to get that balance, if you've got $100 and you're saying, okay, I'm buying stocks with that $100, you're also going to be shorting stocks, which is a borrowing. You're doing that again on margin, right? So it on your books, your balance sheet has got, oh, I've got, I'm $100 long and I'm $100 short. The net would be zero, meaning I'm, I'm balanced on both sides, but my gross exposure to your side, to your, to your point, would be 200%. So that, I, that would be one turn of leverage on my initial $100. And these types of strategies, right, your, your, your fundamental assumption is that the positions which are long and the positions which are short are generally, in, in similar asset classes, are generally going to be going in, in different directions. And so you're, yep. you're getting natural diversification. And, and so the reason why gross leverage is one of these measures that we look at a lot, and, and I think you know, risk managers will even, above all the more sophisticated ways they look at it, in the end, your gross matters almost more than anything because in very adverse environments, both sides of your portfolio can go against you at once, and they may provide exactly. no diversification. And, and can I give an example of this? Please. Right. So I just we just gave that example of, okay, you're a hedge fund, you're long short, you're, you, you've got $100 in cash that your investors have given to you. You went out and you bought $100 worth of stock. And then you go to your prime broker and you say, hey, can, can, can we borrow $100 worth of stock to be short? And the bank, the prime broker says, sure, that's, that's your business, right? I, I mean, we're going to charge you. There's going to be a little bit of money you got to put up, right, to, to borrow that $100 worth of stock. Uh, but, but then we're going to sell it and get some cash. But we're going to sell it. Great. That, that's right. Yeah. So so it's that's and, why it's you, a good And you business. used to be able to earn money on that cash. Oh my God. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> that, that, that was how long short equity oh, funds made. Those money. Those were the days. Those were the days <laughs> when you could get five percent on the cash that that you know you got from shorting a stock. Yes. Those were the days. But we digress. Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> The, and, and the bank says, all right, well, well, yeah, I think that's a reasonable amount, right? You've got, you've got $100 of real money, real cash money. You've invested in these stocks. They could go up or down, right? Uh, but yeah, we feel comfortable lending you $100 of, of, of stock that you're now short. And then you go, well, well, if you're comfortable with that, how about um, kind of lending me some money that I can, well, you know, buy more longs and short more stocks against it, right? How, what about that, Mr. Banker? Because I'm, I'm still balanced, right? You don't yeah, have yeah. to worry. And look you, at my risk models. They're oh, oh, the VAR on this is, <laughs> it's, it's teensy-weensy tiny, the, the, my value at risk. So you really have nothing to worry about, Mr. Banker, if, if, if now you also lend me money to double down on the long side and double down on the short side. Yeah. Because look at the balance. You know, one will go up, maybe the other side will go down. Uh, you're, it's safe as houses here. Yeah. So at that point, you're no longer 200%. Great. Let's say, let's say the bank goes along with this, yeah. right? So here you're no longer 200% gross invested. You're 400% gross invested. 
You don't have one turn of leverage, that $100 worth of stocks you, you borrowed to be short, but now you're three turns of leverage, right? Two turns of leverage on your shorts, 200%, and an additional turn for now you've upped your long positions. Which is for what I would call traditional long short equity funds, a lot. And it yep. wouldn't, once upon a time, it would not have been crazy. Uh, it's uncommon today among market neutral, especially quantitative market neutral strategies. That's not crazy. Um, right. You 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 can and will see that. Um, you know, especially if there's, you know, a belief at the at the prime broker that the the manager has really sound risk models and practices and things that can justify their assertion that you know those two sides of the book the book both the long and the short side are going to offset each other in, in reliable ways but that's a lot of that's a lot of leverage for for an equity strategy uh, yeah look I, I remember though like Stevie Cohen right at SAC I still I, we've talked about this story before yeah. but I, I remember that day where you know I I was talking to one of the prime brokers and he told me how much leverage they had it's like, oh my God, I get it now. I get it how you can make 40% returns a year when you're, I'm making up this number, it wasn't quite this much, it was close, 8x levered. Yeah. All you gotta do is make 5%. <laughs> right? You just, all you gotta do is make 5%, but you're levered up eight times. That's how you make the 40% returns. Well, and, and there are some strategies outside of the equity space where you have to apply even more leverage than that to achieve much less interesting returns. And this kind of gets back to more of the, the Greensill business example yes. as applied to investment strategies. And yep. once you get out of the equity space, that's where you start to see strategies that, that take on a lot, a lot more, leverage. more leverage. right? And so, you know, as you veer kind of into the managed futures and CTA space, even though a lot of these assets are every bit as volatile as equities, there has always been a comfort within futures, and this is veering a little outside of the just pure right. prime brokerage right. into right. now we're dealing with futures clearing merchants and all sorts of other, um, you, you know, kind of derivative complications. But once you start moving from from equities to to derivatives like futures and swaps, and primarily futures, which exist within within CTAs and um, and and managed future strategies, the leverage that you start to see in those can, oh, it can be, can it's, be it's enormous, much higher. Yep. Yep. And and you know I know when whenever we ran a, a managed future strategy it was a trend following strategy that um, yep the, that was all futures across um, equity markets commodities markets and then interest rate futures markets so sovereign debt um, we would have uh, you know long positions that were two hundred fifty to three hundred and the same on the short side right so it was yep. it was market neutral but we would be you know as much as six you know, 600% gross exposure. And that would not be crazy for, I think, a lot of In, uh, that, in that particular space. field. But what's crazy is, <laughs> let's get, I mean, here's the, the oh, punchline here, Fixed right? income relative value, right, is is the, the place where seeing 20, 25 times. Pretty, be, pretty commonplace. Because the idea, right, and the idea, and this is true, really the idea behind all of it is that there is an expectation that every asset is, so volatile, right? It has a small amount of natural volat volatility in its its price and its return, yep. or it has a lot of volatility. And then there's a set of assumptions around how assets offset one another and mm -hmm. diversify versus one another. And the extent to which both exchanges, when it comes to the volatility of the underlying asset and the various 
parties which participate in the setting of 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 margin requirements and in the the, lend, the lending effectively of, of of money implicitly or explicitly they are all in the business of of looking at the volatility of the underlying assets and yep. how those assets relate to say here's how much we think you can borrow against that hundred dollars that you put into the account and how much exposure we think it's reasonable for you to have on and so in, in some of those again more you know wild strategies you know you're, you're starting to talk about you know 20 25 times but it, it's in assets which they don't have, jump around very much or it in pairs that are in really, pairs that are really, really similar stable. similar and stable right but it's for when, the most part <laughs> right well well but this is the point right when those I use the big phrase you know cross asset correlations when these when those break down yeah right when your portfolio goes perverse on you right? where your longs go down and your shorts don't work that's where this all falls apart right or when volatility in something spikes up for 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 who knows what reason right the the price you know what what you should be able to borrow on that that needs to come down and in the case of archegos it didn't yeah and I, I you know We'll see what happens here. It seems clear. It seems clear to me, at least. And this is circumstantial, you know. But but just looking at this and looking at how the different banks reacted to this portfolio was that you know a lot more credit, a lot more leverage had been extended in aggregate than any one of the participants believed was actually taking place. And, uh, you know, I, I, that, that, that was at the core of the piece that I wrote this week, which is that, you know, the, the, you look at the portfolio and you, and, and you look at the stuff that got, that got blown out, that got sold out from underneath uh, Huang. It, you know, he had had a good run on a lot of these, the, the, these positions. And I'm sure he's like every trader that, that ever lived. I'm sure he was doubling down on some of the recent losses. I, I'm sure it wasn't, you know, a double plus plus net capital position like you probably had in, I don't know, eight weeks ago. But it wasn't on the on the face of it a portfolio that made me think, oh my God, you know, this 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 portfolio has just been crushed. I, I mean it's gotta be out. I, I gotta think that this was a margin call with air quotes. Right? That that, that it was the banks having this Conversation. Wait, wait. You've got how much exposure to Bill, and 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 kind of understanding. Uh, oh, wait, wait. That that wasn't what we we thought our arrangement was with Bill. We thought we were the only ones here who you know where who we had this this sort of high volatility exposure that was probably not hedged in these stable or close pairs, right? So that they looked at this and said, "All right, we 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 got a." We're, we're we're out. We're canceling this, and that's what that's what I think happened last Friday. I uh, I don't know. I'm I'm a bit yeah. agnostic to it. I, it. It's it certainly is unusual, and this and maybe this is the thing that that strikes me about these events as being the most unusual is that short squeezes do happen, but but blowups tend not to be in someone having too too many too many long equity positions. Right. It's a very weird, very weird. 
right. wait for something to blow up. That's not how blow-ups happen. And so, you know, it, it's... Especially certain, long equity positions, which over had like the last working. year had been, you know, are up a ton. Yeah. So a ton. That, that certainly lends credence to something that looks kind of like what you're talking about, which is, you know, what certainly implies the forced liquidations that we then saw subsequently. Um, but all, all the same... Yeah. Whatever was the the proximate cause or the the straw that broke the camel's back, you know the the the, the weight that was set upon the camel's back was was leverage of uh, and a substantial yep. leverage yep. on these positions, and I think as you hear us talk about that, and if you were on our prior podcasts when we were we were talking about there being too much leverage in this leverage in the system, you might come away with the impression that we think debt is is a bad thing and that leverage is. You know, capital B a bad thing. Oh no, and no. it isn't true at all. In fact, quite to the contrary. I think for both of us. Oh, both you know, personally and professionally, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, what is what is a mortgage except five to one leverage if you put twenty percent down, right? Or <laughs> yeah. or nine nine x leverage if you if you've got a ten percent down payment, right? I, I think that's a great thing. Yeah. I, I I think that you know the the, the extension of credit. I, well, I, I think a lot of things about it. I think if, if I could do one thing, frankly, to, to, to improve the lot of humanity around the world and to lift people out of poverty, it would be the extension of reasonably, reasonably priced credit to the unbanked and the underbanked people all around the world. No question. Right? <laughs> I mean, I mean you, you want to lift people out of poverty? That's how you do it. I, I this is the oxygen that makes an economy that makes a society grow. What's well, the fundamental premise of capitalism is that the combina- the injecting capital into a productive yep. human labor source creates value. And if you aren't creating channels that allow that capital to get places because they don't have equity, to post themselves to transform their labor ingenuity and creativity into to value, then you're leaving that value they could create on the table and sort of settling for the the, the next best thing they could do as an employee of of exactly. know, somebody's company. Right, right. So, that, look, I I think credit and leverage is like I say, I really think it's the the oxygen for 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 our economy and and. And that flame of of human ingenuity and growth requires that oxygen of borrowed money. Yeah. So it is. So, so no, I'm not opposed to it at all. What I'm very much opposed to, though, is I'll call it the financialization of leverage. What do you what, What do you mean by that? Well, what I'm very much opposed to is the way that privileged participants in the system and by privileged I mean politically privileged participants the way that they can enjoy massive leverage and then employ that leverage in ways that A creates a very real social cost and B, where the gains are theirs. It's, it's the old story of, of you know, if of, of, of private gains and socialized losses. And I, I very much think that that is the system that we've created, the, the, the heavily financialized system we've created, 
in, you know, Western corporate and market structures, year of our Lord, 2021. I, I, I think that it it is the ability of a Melvin Capital to acquire as much leverage as they like or, 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 or Archegos, again, a so-called family office to, to acquire as much capital as they like, to take positions while at the same time, I believe in a very real sense, they have a too-big-to-fail safety net placed underneath them. You know, if, 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 if banks, if, if, if hedge funds, if, 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 if they could truly kind of go out of business, right, I'd have much less qualms about Credit Suisse screwing up and doing what they're doing. Right, Credit Suisse has paid what is I looked it up it's like over nine billion dollars in fines for the the <laughs> the in legal settlements and 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 fines for the laws they've broken right over the last ten years. It could be ninety billion dollars, right? It doesn't matter because Credit Suisse is too big to fail. So I want to step back a little bit. We said a lot there. Okay, and, and I want to, <laughs> you know, I want. There may be a couple of things I'll even push back on. Okay, but when I think about the difference between the kind of leverage that you and I think of as is the good and productive leverage that right. that permits and and doesn't just juice the growth growth that's possible. It increases the efficiency of that growth by by funneling capital to places where it wouldn't otherwise be able to be put put to those productive ends and we'd be losing right. the benefit of that. So I'm we're a huge fan of that. What what I'm actually okay with, mm-hmm. right, before I get to the things maybe that that, <laughs> that I have an issue with on the leverage side, if if Archegos and Melvin wanted to look each other square in the eye and let, let's let's pretend in this case that that, that Melvin is is a, is a lender. Okay. Right? If 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 Melvin is a privately held lender with you know, private owners and funders um, of a moderate size that goes to Archegos and says, "We will lend you twenty to one to you know to to build a you know thousand percent long, thousand percent yeah, short right. equity portfolio." You guys just knock yourselves out, and Archegos does it. They blow up, and the lender to them ends up losing their shirt on all the money that they'd lent to Archegos. I don't care. Agreed. So the, I, I so, mean, that's that's what I mean about you know if if. If Credit Suisse could really go out of business, I'd be fine with all this. Yeah, right? I, and so Stevie I, Cohen could go out of business. Because I'd be I fine think, with all this. Yeah, but he I mean, can't. I, he can't, Rusty. Well, I, want, I want to get back to on Stevie Cohen. Okay, I, I do think that when when we talk about the, the privileged players, I think some people may turn off and think, "Well, oh, you know, you're just you just you jealous of, of people who are doing." No, no, I am. I am perfectly content for consenting adults. At, at, with, yes. As you say, with lots of lawyers, yep. to have a, a bilateral agreement that affects functionally only them, that allows one of them to make an extraordinary amount of money and take an extraordinary amount of risk, if the other one knows it and they're not, not neither of them is committing fraud. Yep, rock I am on. Totally fine with Same. that. Same, and and I think I share your observation that the concern creeps in when the cost that's being socialized is not number one, either properly recognized and thought of, or number two, not offset sufficiently by whatever it is we gain Some by sort permitting of, this. Yeah, productivity gain or, or the like, you know, investing in the real economy, for lack of a better word. Yeah, because, well, I mean, or or even in more ephemeral sense, because I'm, I'm 
I don't feel like anyone who is not doing something that affects the system right. has any need to justify the you know the the Why value of what that. they're doing to totally. society. Yep, agreed. If, agreed as well. So the, the the fact that there is a hedge fund industry that is inherently zero sum, yep. right? And active management, our, our entire industry produces nothing of nothing. direct value, other than, and I truly believe this, there the important role of these industries is to set the price of capital and to aid in the process whereby capital finds its way to its most productive end. That is, in my opinion, a really critical social function. And frankly, relative to 10 or 15 years ago, when there were a lot more hedge funds and a lot fewer passive investment options, every dollar that continues to be in long short equity and long short credit hedge funds today has more influence on it whether capital is being appropriately priced than it ever has before. And ever. so yep. I, I am one, I, you know, I, I know you use the word privilege, but I, I'm, I'm literally saying I think hedge funds today play a really, ha, can play a really important social role that I am comfortable saying is a, is a gross good. The question yeah. is whether, as we and, talk about these other things, it's a net good. But you understand, right? When I say privileged, I don't mean privileged in the sense of rich. I think you mean in in a in a legal. I mean sense. it in a legal yeah. privilege sense, and so that that is important. I'm glad we 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 focused on that a second. What I mean is that they have legal protections that prevents them from suffering the consequences of being wrong, right? Of being wrong both in the immediate sense, right, but being wrong more broadly in the business model they set up or, 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 or what have you. Yeah. I, I think there are so many more too-big-to-fail entities, both explicitly, like the big banks, right? So, so these systemically important financial institutions, SIFIs, right? They have an explicit guarantee from the U.S. government. And so when we say they're too-big-to-fail, that's not kind of jargon that's just not that 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 is an explicit guarantee that they they are characterized as these systemically important financial institutions they cannot fail yeah right what i'm saying though is that it's not just these explicit guarantees mm-hmm. that are provided they are the implicit guarantees and look implicit guarantees have been around forever the the, the most famous one I think that I'm aware of, right, is the implicit guarantee of Fannie and Freddie, Fannie yes. Mae and Freddie Mac instruments, right? So, you know, you know, what do, what do Fannie Mae and Freddie, Freddie Mac do? They purchase and securitize uh, mortgages, right? So-called conforming mortgages. They, you know, here, here are the requirements that, that Fannie Mae and Freddie, Freddie Mac present for the mortgage and if the bank says okay check the box we've got these 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 four characteristics we can check all four boxes Fannie Mae says great I will buy that from you uh, Mr. Bank to allow you to make more loans and I we will package these in securities that we will then sell to to to, to investors with a steady yield and all, you know all those different different attributes well there's an implicit guarantee that the U.S. federal government will step in to always bail out Fannie Mae 
that, that, that they will not allow Fannie Mae to go bankrupt. It is not an explicit guarantee. It's implicit. But it is also common knowledge. Fannie Mae acts as if they have this guarantee. Market participants act as if this guarantee exists. This guarantee does exist. It is impossible for the U.S. government, and we, we look, we saw this in great financial crisis, right? That it, it doesn't mean the U.S. government is going to back the equity of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, not even the preferred equity, which, you know, a lot of people got that wrong, right? You yeah. know, they thought, oh, you know, you know, there's a reason that preferred equity has got that little word called equity in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but these sort of implicit guarantees have grown so dramatically over the past 12 years that when I say that Stevie Cohen can't go out of, can't go under, right, I really mean that, right? When you, when you see the, the, the EC, so when Greensill was going under, you know, you saw the headlines, well, the ECB is inquiring as to whether there's, you know, systemic contagion here. You know, what do you think they're talking about? if they're not talking about private pools of capital and the loans that they have made, the counterparty agreements they have, the swaps that exist from this entity to the other, that's what they're talking about, man. That's what the Fed is talking about when they say, well, you know, the Federal Reserve made some calls to, to, to banks over the weekend, you know, to see what is the contagion risk of, of whatever. This is, this is what they're talking about. And when these implicit guarantees exist, I get a little umbrage at the lack of control, price, whatever word you want to use, over the leverage that's being extended to guys like to, 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 to Archegos, right? Or to, to, to Melvin. Yeah, and I, and I don't know that this is a place where we differ. Now that you've you've explained that a little bit further, I um I don't think it has anything to do with with Stevie Cohen specifically, or you know no. whether Citadel. No. So the argument we're not, not is, that we're making is not that you know necessarily, although this can be the true in specific cases that the government of the United States or regulators are beholden to some particularly singularly power individual powerful right. individual. It is, and this is my belief, that the crossover point for an alternative asset manager, specifically in, in, in liquid asset space, right. at which their failure becomes a regulatory intervention opportunity, is probably around twenty billion. I think that's uh, that. I, I think that's right. Right, and and frankly, and what sorry, that probably means is that Melvin Capital is probably not in that group. Right? I think that's right, and I want to clarify because you know we we are trying to make this sort of primer. Like what I mean is yeah. that. If a long short equity fund, a long short credit fund, a you know equity market neutral or multi strategy hedge fund has assets of more than around twenty billion, and again this is this is not a heavily researched number. No. This is you know finger in the air. Um, what we're saying is that go under. if if they went under, that that would be an event which would be perceived as having quote systemic implications yep. on other financial institutions, by which we mean the probably the, the pricing of financial assets. Right. The, the lesson that was quote-unquote learned in 2008 was that Lehman can never happen again. Never again. That was the lesson of 2008. And what that means is then it won't. 
Lehman ain't ever happening again, right? It's not going to happen with a Credit Suisse, right? Like no matter how many billions they pay and how many insane screw-ups they have, whether it's around Greensill or, 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 or Archegos, yeah. it ain't happening. They're not going out of business. And, ne- and to, to our point, this also extends not just to these explicit guarantees, but to now we think there's an implicit guarantee on institutions of, I agree with your kind of number, 20 billion in size or larger. And here's the here's the rough part. Yeah. Is that for all of these institutions, not even the ones that are of that size and scale, but for the ones who are small, the nature of the, the industry is one that creates moral hazard at risk taking. And so we, we'd actually, you know, we mentioned some of the notes that we've published about this. You know, I'd written a note again a couple of years ago called By Our Own Petard. Yeah. And specifically- the, I'm going to interrupt you one second. Yeah. So I want to, we, we've mentioned two of these notes. So I'm going to make these notes available on the website. So if you're hearing this and you want to see the notes, I'll put them up on the website. I'll take them out from behind the paywall uh, because we're talking about them here. So, so uh, yeah, check it out. We'll, we'll we'll put them up on the website. Great. Um, the 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 note this by our own petard. Mm-hmm. The observation of, of of the note is that performance fees, which are the reason hedge funds exist, right? Yep. Hedge funds exist to generate performance fees, which are in most cases somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent of the returns they generate for for their investors. Those performance fees are, by their very definition, asymmetric. The funds through which investor capital are deployed in financial markets and through which they um, invest and you know borrow monies, those are all limited partnership vehicles or limited liability companies. Right. The, and limited partnership and limit that limited means that the the minimum value of those things is zero. And so f- what you have in hedge funds as an industry and as individuals is a structure whereby there are two floors at zero. Performance yep. fees don't go below zero, and the value of the limited partnership doesn't go below zero. In the case of the use of leverage, the underlying value of a thing can go way, way below, below zero. zero. Yep. <laughs> and so, right. and and in different ways, right? Because in whether we're talking about below zero or bef- below the the capital that was invested, you know, by by the investor in the first place, there are multiple degrees of asymmetry whereby. Even a hedge fund manager who had zero skill has an expectation of generating a positive performance fee. Why? Well, because when you look at all the range of potential outcomes, all of the the negative ones have a floor at zero. Yeah. (laughs) And all the good ones are above zero. There's a skew. And so you take the average. And and so the hedge fund as a business model, and and, and when we're talking about hedge funds, this is true for... So many financial asset owners, institutions, it's true for banks. Um, And so all of these things we're talking about, it's leveraging skewness. And all of these implicit and explicit guarantees create a moral hazard to leverage skewness as much as you can. Because the more volatility that a hedge fund takes, the, the more volatile its positions, even if it's not skilled, the higher its expectation is of generating an incentive fee or a performance fee that it didn't earn. And unfortunately, as an investor in one of those funds, you don't get to claw that back. Right. Right. And if you go below zero, you know, 
unless there was fraud, you're not going to claw it back from the, the general partner uh, or the, the management company to that hedge fund that borrowed a bunch of money and had, had the fund's value go below zero. And there is always somebody left holding the bag. If you are the, the asset owner who invested in a hedge fund or one of these institutions and your, your $100 went to $50, but it didn't go straight there. It went from $100 to $150 to $50. Well, you paid $10 in performance fees that are you're never getting back. Never getting back. And, and so you have held the bag for their talentless risk-taking. Same thing happens on the on the leverage side. If that hundred dollars goes to negative one hundred dollars, that because of leverage, yep, that negative one hundred dollars is now was sitting on the balance sheet of of a bank that now you and I as you know John Q taxpayer yep. are on the hook for providing low cost capital and rescue financing, or whether it's done through the central banks effectively through inflation providing a backstop to these institutions that lowers their cost of capital in a way that is not determined by the market. So all of these, and this is the, the most powerful to me, implicit guarantee behind guarantee. all of this, yep. is that all of this kind of risk-taking activity is supported by the memes of yay capitalism, right? This idea that, right. well, don't you believe that there should be winners and, and losers? That's what that's what capitalism is. It's we figure out who had the right idea and the bad idea. We reward the good one, and we we you know send the the, the bad one packing so they can find what they're really supposed to do. In life. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And 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 that's the meme that supports all of these conventions and structures that drive a moral hazard toward additional risk taking and utilization of leverage. But that isn't what it is. It's all driven by non market functions that underpin that risk taking by allowing the overruns of leverage and the costs of excessive leverage to be socialized through inflation, yep. through imbalances in costs of capital, higher costs of capital for companies that didn't deserve to have that higher cost of capital, lower productivity at, at an aggregate level for our society. All of these things are costs of permitting institu institutions to take too much leverage. It, you know, Rusty, it, it, it's often struck me since I've been out of the, the the hedge fund game for for a while, what an idiot I was, <laughs> right? And, and I mean that too. Because you're running they, too conservative, huh? Well, there there are two business models. I think one is what you're describing, which is that the clear incentive is is, is not to balance out your portfolio. The, the clear incentive is to lever up as much as possible, right? And that's an important part of this. You don't want to take on this 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 uh, strategy, I'll say, until you can lever up. Yeah. Right. right? So, yeah. so, so you got to do well enough. You got to, you, you got to work it out un until you can lever up. And then when you do, you want to find ways to put it all on red. You want to put, put it all on red, right? That's one model. Well, yeah, so, but there's another model too. I think you've also written about this, right? The other model is, is just to get as many assets as you can, charge a performance fee and just hug the, Hug, hug, hug the index and and get 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 paid on beta, yeah, right. That that's another win. And 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 I and I just kicked myself because I didn't do either of those. Yeah, right. That <laughs> and it's like, that's that's how you end up owning a sports team in America today. Is you choose take, one of those. You two. take you take one of those two routes. That's how you own a sports team in America today. I can think of two billionaires within. 20 miles of where we're sitting right now. Yep. 
one of whom took one road, door, 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 door number one, number and one the and other one took door number two. And 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 I think actually both of them are good and decent people, but at the same time, it's they clear you clearly choose one of those those, those two strategies. And and I, I again, when when the funds and the strategies in question are not taking excessive leverage, but leverage that you know ultimately is. Um, is is very likely to be satisfied by the you know the underlying collateral right. of the fund, and and where it doesn't subject institutions to risk that we end up you know for the bill for. God uh, bless. Fine. God bless. Right. So so I, I have much problem. You know I don't have a problem. It I I find it distasteful. Right. Mm. I, I I don't understand why people would give money to someone who just accumulates who has marketing alpha right to, to to accumulate a big pool of capital and charge a performance fee on oh i was invested in the s&p 500 last year right uh, good 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 for me uh, i have much more of a problem with door number one i think as we're describing it here the put it all on red yeah because at a certain size when you to our point earlier when you put it all on red you don't you have an implicit issue, an implicit guarantee if you're too big to really fail. Yeah, and and that 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 that's what really bothers me. Uh, and and because to your also your point, when you're levered up like this, the losses can be much greater than just the initial, obviously the initial capital, the equity portion of this, and those losses are borne by us. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's funny because there's actually another note that I think we should include in, in the list yep. that we have here. You, you wrote a great note uh, a while back co- called, uh, Oh, hell, go ahead and burn your hand if you want to, Martha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Famous family story. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think that as, as we sort of talk about consenting adults making, you know, making mistakes that, that harm yep. them, you know, and yep. you, you learn from. Yeah, you got to burn yourself on that stove sometimes. What, from a policy perspective. Right. What can we do that respects the right of consenting stupid Americans to burn, burn their hand if they, want, if they to, want to, yep. keeps the benefits that actually having someone who's out there trying to discover the right price for, you know, mm-hmm. for, for assets, you know, keeping the benefits of that in our social structure and institutions without, and, 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 and achieve both of those things while blunting these these socialized costs that you know we're we're pretending are determined by markets when they are explicitly determined by government policy how do we how do we blunt those costs without killing those other two benefits yeah look for 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 me I, it it gets into the too big part of the too big to fail uh, and and here I'm going to talk specifically about banks. Yeah. I, I, I and I, I feel this way about big tech companies too. I, I think you and I differ a little bit on this, right? But but I not I, that much. I I I I break up the banks. I don't I don't, I don't think there should I, I'd, and like any sort of big trust institution, it doesn't mean you're going to, you know, do away with the jobs or anything. You're you're gonna you're you're, you're splitting them up. It doesn't mean you're nationalizing it. No. Nope, nope. On the contrary, 
on the contrary, right? I I, I want exactly. <laughs> I, I want I want ten smaller. You know, J.P. Morgan to me is the new Ma Bell, right? I'd I'd break it up. I I mean I, I'm not sure why you think we would disagree on that, other than I think it's too hard. I mean, I, I'm, I'm my decision. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I want. Yeah, yeah, I might as well say, oh, we should raise interest rates, or we should let interest rates, you know, you know, take on uh, their their natural place instead of you know keeping them down at zero. Right? It's 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 equally impossible. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, I, frankly, my um my solution pr- probably is just as hard, much more complicated, and restricts freedom even more. So I don't even know <laughs> why I'm suggesting it. But I tell you, if you wanted to get rid of excessive leverage and risk taking. Yeah. You could do it in one fell swoop by simply making it so that no performance fee could ever be paid out of a limited partnership vehicle until the actual distribution of cash relating to an investor's actual investment in that fund. By which I mean no oh, right. investor ever right. pays an incentive fee An- until they pull their money out. Until of the they fund. pull the money out. Right. I think your risk taking and leverage, if you make that change, f- falls through the floor. I mean, you know. It would never happen since 90% of political funding and campaign contributions come from hedge fund managers, probably. But uh. Well, look, I, I mean, <laughs> you, you've absolutely had kind of elements of this and kind of the clawback rules that were put yeah. on to uh, in banks in particular. Yeah. Right. So I, I don't think that's I don't I don't think that's crazy at all. Uh, but it's 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 hard to legislate, you know. It is very hard, and especially because a lot of those things are are going to be part of state corporate law, right? Yep. And and where you you ultimately have the uh, the partnership registered, so it's a problem. But you know, as we sort of close on a what has been kind of a far-reaching discussion, yeah. I am struck, however, by the fact that you've written these three notes without intending to focus on leverage, and they're all about a, leverage within a single quarter. And so the, it does raise the question for us to consider of why. Not why am I reading this now, but why why is this happening right now, in this moment? Is it coincidence? No. No, it's because the world is changing. The we and we've we've talked a lot about this. The these gigantic barges of macroeconomics and society that are very hard to turn around in in the river. I guess we could do some sort of you know, Suez Canal thing here, but I, but I'll avoid it. <laughs> I was just say, just these are big barges, and, and and it's very difficult to get them to turn around, and and yet they have. And once they turn around, they don't turn back around. They keep going in the new direction. And the the big barges I'm talking about are globalization, the reversal of globalization. Right? The big barges I'm talking about are uh, political conflict, both domestically and the widening gyre, basically, that, that, that we've written about. You know, that's not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's just not not just a domestic phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. I, I do think that the barge of deflationary expectations versus inflationary expectations, I my view is that that barge is, 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 is turning as well. Everything that these cross-asset correlations are built on, you know, again, to use that, you know, $10 phrase from, from earlier, all of our principles on which you would say, yeah, I want to lever up and put it on this and that, I think all of those principles are now changing. And I think that it creates all of these accidents and potholes that more and more people will get a spear in their chest from. 
because I don't think that Bill Wong's the only quote unquote family office out there with, you know, five counterparties, each of which is advancing him $10 billion, right? I, I don't think he's the only one out there. I don't think Lex Greensill is the only one out there with some, you know, insanely overblown, interesting idea, but just overblown into something that becomes just a complete fraud. Well, and, and let's let's be honest here. Um, I don't think we're exaggerating by saying this has not this zeitgeist has not been a very hands-on period for securities regulators. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's Jay Clayton now? Yeah, he's chairman of the board of Apollo. That's where he is. It's interesting because I agree with everything that you said as as things that are yeah. happening. In fact, I'm I'm, I'm literally, literally writing a piece that will probably be published on Tuesday that makes each of those arguments. I, I, I think it's something a little more idiosyncratic, okay. at least in this case. Uh, I think that we are coming out of a period in which the the pandemic and the very specific rise of retail investors created a a sharp spike in idiosyncratic risk opportunity for individual securities. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. if if I'm a hedge fund manager and, and and I think about it in terms of, you know, you know, going going to Vegas and counting cards. Right. I'm a hedge fund manager sitting here saying, look, for the first time in a long time, I feel like I've got a lot of really idiosyncratic risk in, in, in single names. And I've got banks who don't realize how much single name idiosyncratic risk, you know, ex ante has, uh, has yeah. risen. Right, right, right. I can get a lot of cheap capital to put on positions that have so much implicit and skewness and leverage that I can actually, I actually have the ability to, to put my thumb against and maybe press the direction of. Even yeah, if I don't the big, the big stack phenomenon exactly yeah. it's a it, the count is what it is and now it's time to take the whole bankroll and, mm-hmm. and put it on and I, I think that's what's happening with this this and Greensill sort of its own thing right but when you look at you know that that's a, that's that a more classic su- fraud yeah <laughs> when you look at the, the Archegos and, and and Melvin that feels to me like I can get cheap capital to support really big skewness on. Yep these positions that, you know, gives me the ability to say, let's put the bankroll on it. And if we do, we're going to come out of this looking like we're going to own a sports team. We're going to own a sports team. So I, I, it's not, it's a false dichotomy to say that both those things, you know, aren't, can't be true at the same time. And I believe in all those things you said, but it's, it's it's assuming we said, you know, it's all true. Well, I think as always, especially lately, we've, we've tried to conclude these discussions with, uh, you know, a recommendation that, you know, especially those who are subscribers to Epsilon Theory, Go to our website because we've 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 got this feature that we've introduced over the last couple of months that is a is a forum where yep. we're having these conversations live with members of the community, and this is one especially on the the solution angle. Uh, I don't really like my idea, and I hate Ben's idea, <laughs> and so I'd, I'd really like to hear something that I liked a little bit more that that did each of those things, which is keeps the the benefits that someone actually engaging in the you know the process of price discovery you know what that brings to society keeps the freedom for people to burn their hands if they if they want yep. to but starts to ratchet down the extent to which all of us are being forced to socialize the costs of the the leveraged uh, asymmetry uh, and the industries which are built around that leveraged asymmetry yep, for guys who want to own a sports team so join us there join us again on the podcast uh, we're we're always so happy to hear the feedback on the podcasts. If you did like it and enjoyed it, uh, please uh, again you know rate, 
share, like, and subscribe. Um, uh, but otherwise, we will look forward to seeing uh, you and uh, speaking to you next time. See you next time. Thanks, Rusty. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben.